Thank you for joining us for today's message. We believe God is going to do great things in your life. If God has impacted you through this ministry, partner with us in reaching others. Go to summitessay.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. We're in a series that we're calling these life-changing encounters with Jesus. Not a deal like, honey, I met an interesting guy today at the mall. Not that, but life and death, total transformation. When people met Jesus, they did have a reaction, good or bad, one way or the other, they were not unmoved. And our little message today in this series is an aspect of encountering Jesus that's a little bit painful. And it has to do with facing up to the truth about yourself and your own life. You know, in a room this size, there are going to be people that have been hiding, people who have secrets, and this business of examining yourself happens periodically for all of us. And the truth about most of us is that we're not near as loving as we pretend to be or as much as we'd like to think we are. And the truth about many of us is that we can bench press a pretty good size of grudge for an extremely long time. And one of the things that inevitably happens when you encounter Jesus is you come face to face with truth about yourself. You can only meet Jesus if you're willing to face truth because Jesus is truth and he always speaks the truth. And facing the truth almost always involves some pain. Yeah, Jesus said truth will make you free, but it'll make you miserable first. It's true. It's true. It does hurt. Truth does hurt, but it's the only thing that'll make you free. So here's the deal. I'm asking all of us, everybody, to make a commitment the best you can to face the truth about yourself that you generally try to ignore or avoid. Now, for a guy in our story today, Luke chapter 19 it's primarily a financial problem. He had to deal with greed. For others of you in this room, it might be relational. It may be an issue of integrity, some bad habit that you're dealing with, sexuality, a secret sin that nobody in other than you knows about on this earth. So Luke 19, let's meet a guy named Zacchaeus, the first 10 verses. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and very rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was. Remember, he's heard about him. And so on account of the crowd's size, he couldn't see because he was very short in stature. So he ran ahead of the crowd and climbed a sycamore tree to see the Lord. He knew he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zac hurried down and was happy to welcome him. And everybody that saw it started to grumble and said, look, Jesus has gone to be the guest of somebody who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then Jesus looked at him remarkably and said, Today salvation has come to your house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save 
that which is lost. I hope we never forget our job here is not to comfort a bunch of saints, but to reach people who are not believers who need Jesus. I mean, that's our mission. So our style, the music, the arrangement is not so you can feel comfortable in your religion. It, it, our mission is to fish, to go after people who are far from God, who aren't like you, who didn't vote like you. Jesus likes these people, and he wants them in his family. I want them in my church. I do, and I hope they sit right next to some self-righteous bigot. I hope she's wearing a sundress with a lot of cleavage and a dragon tattooed on her. I mean, if you're here, sweetheart, I love you. I'm glad you're here. You are in the right place. So this is an encounter. I don't know where that came from. That was just me. This is an encounter with Jesus and a guy named Zacchaeus. So let me begin with an occupational question for everybody. Think back to when you were growing up and what you dreamed about that you might become or wanted to be when you grew up. Anybody dream about becoming a fireman, a policeman, maybe somebody in a uniform, in military, or you thought about becoming an artist, an actor, a singer, a writer. If you thought about any of that, how about a quick hands up? Just let me, look at that. Everybody thought about being something. Well, how many of you when you were young remember ever saying, when I grow up, I wanna be a tax collector? Nope, nobody. Tax collectors are never popular in any culture, in any generation. Back in 1995, IRS Commissioner Margaret Richardson said the term revenue agents was so unpopular because of what IRS does. And they want to rename them compliance people. But they still do the same thing. They take your money. Tax collectors have never and will never be popular, ever. So in Israel, there were certain vocations that carried a social stigma. They were called despised trades. No devout Jewish person would ever engage in any of them. On the list of despised trades and at the bottom were physicians and butchers. They were tempted to cater to the rich and be unfair to the poor. Some occupations are listed not because they're dishonorable, but because they were just disgusting and repugnant, like tanners of dead skins or dung collectors. Dung collectors was actually a career choice in the first century. A very popular song of that day was, Mamas, don't let your boys grow up to be dung collectors. We got a few Willie Nelson fans in the crowd. If a woman's husband became a dung collector, she had a legal right to divorce him and receive a sum of money. How many women in here would go amen to that? There were, however, a few professions that weren't just unpleasant, but were considered immoral. People who engaged in these professions were not just unsavory to be around. They were shunned as immoral, disgusting people. And on the bottom of that list were, you probably guessed it, tax collectors. And you can only imagine how they were despised in Jesus' day. Why? Well, particularly because Rome occupied Israel in Jesus' day. It was not a free country. 
Rome, like most conquering nations, was only interested in how much money they could get out of the occupied countries. So instead of Romans collecting taxes, they hired Israelites to collect them. So the Roman governor would set the quota of the taxes that he wanted to collect, and a tax collector could keep anything for himself. He could extort over the quota. Tax collectors were despised by the Hebrews as traitors who had sold out their brothers and sisters and the people of God to Rome for a profit. So they weren't just traitors, they were guilty of massive dishonesty. They had a saying back then that for tax collectors, repentance is hard. They had cheated so many people that if a tax collector wanted to repent, he wouldn't even know who to go back to to make amends to. He had cheated so many people. So tax collectors weren't only hated, they were despised, they were deprived of their civil and political rights. They could not serve as a witness in court, they could not serve as judges or elders. So to get a sense of what it meant to be a tax collector and how people felt about them, think about despised categories in our culture today. Drug dealers, mafia hit men, terrorists, and you get a feel what it was like to be a tax collector. Now, I've wondered, the Bible doesn't say, but I've often wondered why Zacchaeus went into a profession that created so much hatred, hostility, and rejection for him. I don't know, but it's just a thought. Remember, he's a real short guy. And remember back in Sunday school, we used to sing a song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. I mean, he was a rut. He was just a leprechaun. So making a lot of money would make him feel like a big man. Now listen, that goes on to this day. There are people who are nobodies that have zero personality and integrity because of their wealth play big man. Makes them feel like a big man. They're idiots, but they play big man. Or some nobody with a gun, it makes him feel like a big man. Or somebody with a title or an office or power can play big man. And we've all watched the sex predators in Hollywood like that's a surprise. These big, fat, balding, ugly, stinking people can have starlets go to bed with them only because they have the power to give them a movie contract. They couldn't get a dog to go out with them on their own. I sat with a very rich man three years ago across a lunch table, and I said, I'm going to ask you a sobering question. I said, I hope you're going to tell me you know that these 20-year-old women, he's a 60-year-old man, and all of these people around you aren't with you because they like you. They're with you for the money and the power and the seats and the travel and the perks. They're just feeding off of you and they'll dump you the moment you don't have it. Tell me you're smart enough to know that. Well, he told me he thought he was, but I don't believe he was. Now, you want to know the rest of the story? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I see you looking intently, going to tell me. No. No, I just want you to know I asked that sobering question because it's all right to have it as long as you understand everybody around you is not really your friend, and you're not really the big man. You're not really the boss man. You got one thing there the little guy doesn't have. You got a lot of money, so you got options. So you can be a fool, you can be rude, you can do a lot of things because now it makes you feel like I'm a big man. 
when in fact, if you had to struggle on your own, this church is supported. This church is supported primarily by working class people. We are not supported by rich people. One of my African-American brothers told me that over on the east side, somebody told him, oh, you go to that rich church. And I thought, boy, I wish that was true, <laughs> speaking of us. No, the average giving in this church comes from hardworking, average working class people. And I thank God for every one of you. Very rarely do rich people support a church. It does occur occasionally, but it's very rare. And so don't get to thinking that, yeah, rich people will make it. They don't usually do it. I've been friends with celebrities, movie stars, and sports stars, and I've had them in this city at tables. Three Heinzman Trophy winners slept in our bed at home, and my wife made them chocolate chip cookies. Not one of them ever having, has ever said, let me buy that. Let me pick up the tab for lunch. Not one. They're so used to being catered to and feeling entitled, they're not generous at all while they make millions. That ticks me off. <laughs> I probably need to forgive, don't you think so? So money became the guiding force in his life, and he was very good at it. Luke calls him a chief collector. That means he had other tax collectors working under him, probably over a very wide geographical area. And Luke tells us he was very rich, corrupt and dishonest. He had given up on society, on friendship, and on moral decency and integrity. And he, he, you know, he was betting everything that he had that affluence and wealth and possessions would give him meaning and fulfillment in life. He bet everything on it, but it wasn't working. And there was a hole in his heart that money could not fill. Then he hears Jesus is going to come his way. He's coming to Jericho. And there's something about Jesus that intrigues old Zach. In verse 27, we get a good idea about it, something that had happened in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, tax collectors would sit at a booth on a roadway or near a bridge, and they would collect tolls from people that were transporting merchandise. So Levi gets up, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. There's two remarkable things that happen here. Number one, Jesus, a rabbi, comes up to a despised tax collector and invites him to be part of his team, his group. The other is the tax collector gets up, leaves everything, and follows him. Both instances are dramatic and shocking. So verse 29, then, that, then Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. So today in our culture, just imagine, it was a mansion in Dominion, and this guy is a sleaze bag. He's got all his prostitutes, pimps, and every sleazy character that's friends, and he invites them all to come to his house for a party. And they had a lot of parties there before. You can bet on it. Orgies and drugs and everything else going on. So he's going to have a different party, and he invites them all to come. Now you can imagine the religious crowd on the outside looking at this. And being stunned. They're shocked. So here's this large crowd of tax collectors sitting at the table with Jesus. Now, knowing what you know about tax collectors, it says you can understand the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples. It was horribly upsetting to them. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
And so they, they thought eating and drinking with him would be what's synonymous with being a sinner. And Jesus says, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. And so word about that gets around real quick. This great moral and religious teacher is hanging out with drug dealers and prostitutes and mafia members. I wonder if you got any lost friends. You know, what a shame. I looked at a survey several years ago. Some author had pinned it like a pyramid. And it says, how many friends you have in the world when you come into Christ? And then as you stay in the church a long time, you end up with nobody but Christian friends. Well, how can you have an impact on anybody if you don't have other friends who are not Christians? See, no, what ends up is you get, you get really stinky, skunky, skanky. You, I'm trying to think of adjectives here. It's like, well, I don't want to be friends with somebody that didn't vote like I did, that isn't like me, that doesn't share all my values. And here you go. You just isolated yourself. Jesus made himself vulnerable, stepped right in the middle of, of moral decay and pew and immorality and, and dishonesty. He wasn't, but he stepped right into the middle of it and wasn't afraid to go there to have some kind of impact. And he did have an impact. And I've often wondered why we judge people like that. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Uh, as I get older, I think, man, I was so less like Jesus years ago as a believer I'm ashamed. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was wrong. And the more you get to know about Jesus, the more you'll fall in love with, with God. Because God says, he's, he's now human form in Jesus. And if you kind of like Jesus, you're going to love me. Because if you wonder what God's like, who's a spirit, he comes now in the form of Jesus to say, that's me. Jesus said, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. And I like him an awful lot. Yeah. Right? So I, I think the God most people don't like, I wouldn't like either. But that's not him. That's not who he is. So Zacchaeus wants to see more of the guy who hangs around people like him, who has on his team a guy who used to be like him. He's curious. And what Zach doesn't know, but he's about to find out, is that the arrival of Jesus means he's going to have to face some uncomfortable truth about his own life. So picture the scene. When you're a tax collector, you're not popular. People are not likely to make way for you in the crowd so you can come forth and see There'll be some pushing and shoving, some cursing going on for anybody foolish enough to show up that's a tax collector to see Jesus. They're not going to like you in the crowd. So Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree so he can see over the crowd. And he wants to hide, so he goes up in the tree. Verse 4, he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was going to pass that way. Verse 5, Jesus comes to the place. Now picture this, Zac is sitting up in a tree. Jesus is getting closer and closer, and Zach is thinking, man, this is a good idea. I'm going to get a good look at Jesus, and I'll probably get to hear something he'll say. And then Jesus is standing right under the tree, and he's looking up in the tree. And if you've ever been outside and you see somebody looking up, everybody, everybody goes to look up. So there's hundreds of people, and they're all looking up in the tree wondering, what's Jesus looking at? And then Jesus says, Zacchaeus. Oh, imagine how Zach feels. This guy knows his name. He's up in a tree hiding. So he's thinking he's going to hide in a tree, watch from a safe distance, and all of a sudden, Jesus and everybody else knows he's looking at Zacchaeus in a tree. 
I don't know, it doesn't say, but I imagine Zach tried to be casual. Uh, Jesus, you want to come up and share a branch with me? We can have a little chat up here. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus. And the crowd's probably thinking, all this religious crowd, oh, he's going to let Zach have it now. Boy, he's going to get what's coming to him. This is going to be messy. Finally, a tax collector is going to get called out. And Jesus says, Zach, come down out of that tree. It's hard to have a serious conversation with a man up in a tree. Get down here. And Zach does. And Jesus said, I must stay at your house. He doesn't say, I'd like to. I'm thinking about it. He said, I must do it. God was at work in Zach's life. And this is the kind of thing Jesus does over and over again in Scripture to reveal the radical nature of God's grace. Christians are so legalistic. They forgot what grace is or they never learned it. It's extravagant. It's unreasonable. It, it, is, it isn't even fair. It's grace. And it was made possible by his death on the cross. And Jesus said, I must go to your house. I got to do this. And you think of somebody in our day and imagine Jesus being courteous to that kind of a person to go to his home, have a big party and eat with him and watch the buzz get out. Several years ago, Billy Graham was invited by the then uh, leader of North Korea, not the one now, not the one before, but the one, the first one, the father. He was invited by Billy Graham. I mean, Billy Graham was invited by him to come to North Korea to see him. And boy, there was a big buzz in America, and the religious leaders thought, no, that's a terrible idea. But not only is it dangerous, it's just a bad place to go. And there was a big uproar in America. I remember it well. How could he go see that communist dictator? Well, Billy went. Now, who would you rather go see that guy? Trump? Obama? McCain, Bush, Tiger Woods, my money's on Billy Graham. If you're going to walk in to see a bad man who has initiated the call, I'm sending Billy. And Billy wants to go, whatever the price. Well, Zach, and by the way, Billy will never tell you what they said. And you don't know what went on in that meeting. Did he, was he seeking God? Did he have some spiritual interest? I don't know. I hope so. But who knows? But I guarantee you he'll never be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. Not if Billy was there. I'll guarantee he didn't. You know, I reckon some of you, and I don't mean you younger people, but some of you old messed up religious people, and I don't mean you're messed up as a person. I'm, I'm saying religion messed you up and bad teaching messed you up. You're going to be surprised who might be in heaven and even more surprised who isn't. <laughs> yeah, it's a fact. Uh, I kind of like that about the Lord. Well, Ozak comes down out of the tree. He acknowledges the truth. His whole life's been built on greed and dishonesty. He sinned against God. He sinned against God's people. He's extorted from them. His whole life has been a miserable, selfish waste. Now, the first step in this kind of an encounter of restoration is that you got to come out of hiding. And Zacchaeus comes out of hiding, and he comes to Jesus. Time Magazine ran articles several years ago, I think I read it to you, called Smart Criminals, Stupid Choices. And it was about people who broke the law, tried to hide, but were really dumb in doing it very well. 
For example, a knife-wielding mugger mugged a victim that only could, could produce $12.50 in cash. And the victim said, sir, would you take a check? And the mugger said, sure. So he took the check for $300 and was arrested the next day trying to cash the dumb check. Not smart. In Lynn, Massachusetts, a bank robber stole $4,000 from the Equitable Cooperative Bank. He was tracked down minutes later in his getaway car, which was a taxi cab, and identification was made easy by the fact the robber was still wearing the ski mask he used to rob the bank. Not smart. A burglar in Memphis, Tennessee, pillaged a home and left behind his red and white Nikes. He had taken off his shoes to stay quiet as he robbed the house, but he had forgotten them when he left. And realizing he had left them behind, he later returned and asked the lady of the house if she had found a pair of red and white Nikes. She called the police, and he was arrested minutes later. Not a smart criminal, very poor at hiding. Now, of course, only a really low IQ criminal would try to hide. Really? Uh-huh. Wrongdoing and sin always leads to hiding. It's a reflex response of a human being. Adam sinned with his wife, tried to hide. God said, where are you, Adam? God said, he's in hiding. Hiding always leads to aloneness. Sin always leads to hiding. We go up a tree spiritually, we're alone. We can't receive love because we think, well, if you or if God knew the truth about me, you wouldn't love me. Now, if it was you in that tree, what is it Jesus would need to talk to you about? What is it in your own life you're most likely to hide? See, encountering Jesus means Zach's got to come down out of that tree, admit the truth about himself to himself and to Jesus and to the people he had defrauded and hurt. And if you've ever been involved in a recovery program like AA, you know they have 12 steps. Step number five goes like this. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We faced the truth about ourselves ruthlessly, and we stopped hiding. And that's why they'll sit with people, and they feel comfortable to be able to say, I have a sexual addiction. I'm a drug addict. I'm a, an alcoholic. The whole idea is to get them to face the ugly truth about themselves with other people recovering as well. When Eric Clapton was here and did his show, and I went to hear it after nearly 20 years of sobriety, he still goes to every AA meeting because he doesn't trust himself. And that's smart. You can only be innocent once. You can't be innocent after that. So he doesn't trust himself. And I think that's smart. Uh, uh, and if you've got a problem in here, I want you to know it's smart to be honest and to get help. And you should never feel ashamed to get help. A part of our fallenness is that we're willing to live with huge problems in our lives as long as other people don't find out, as long as we can hide it. And the truth about all of us is that we're all sinners, and people who are still trapped by their sins are more concerned with getting caught than getting help. But a repentant sinner, that is a sinner in recovery, that should be all of us, we're more concerned with getting help than getting caught. Which is it for you? And if you'll be honest, you'll find a lot about yourself and the condition of your soul with that simple question. Are you more concerned that people find out you've got a problem? Or are you more concerned with, i got to get help. I want to get a cure. I want to get out of this mess. I don't care what anybody thinks. You're the one that's going to get well, not the person who's more worried about what people think.
So I've had people divulge things to me I'll take to my grave. I've never shared with my wife. I'll never share with another human being. I never will because that's a confidence. And you want to be very careful about who you share that with. Let it be somebody of maturity or it'll be everywhere. So you better be an oath where you feel safe. And there are people like that. And pastorally, there are people like that. You could share the worst thing in the world. And they're not going to shun you or reject you. I admire you for admitting you got a problem and wanting to get help. And so get your ugly self in a recovery program. Get yourself into a proper counseling program. And the, the, the beauty is that you're a courageous person to admit the truth about yourself and to want to get well. You remember the guy you know, just at the temple? Here's the religious guy, perfect attendance badge. He ties, never missed a service. He serves. He's done everything, maybe teaches Sunday school. And he says, oh, Lord, just imagine this before God Almighty. Oh, Lord, I thank you I'm not like that tax collector over there, that publican, that extortioner, that adulterer. Lord, I thank you that I tithe. I thank you that I have perfect attendance. I thank you I don't smoke. I thank you I've never committed adultery. I thank you I've never had a DUI. I thank you I've never snorted cocaine. Uh, I thank you uh, I've never looked at an R-rated movie. I thank you. <laughs> I'm thinking, wonder what God's thinking. You stink. And here's the brief prayer of the sinner, the publican. He just goes down on his knees, beats his breast, bows his head and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, paraphrase it today, not king. Lord, I stink. I'm a wreck. Have mercy on me. And Jesus said, okay, boys, which one went home saved? The old boy over here who said, I know what I am. And I acknowledge what I am to you, Lord. Have mercy on me. And that's all it took. Wow. So if you think... You can earn favor with God by your moral behavior. Boy, are you in for a rude awakening. Grace is given to somebody who needs it and asks for it. That's what makes it so unbelievably unfair to religious people who think I'm earning all my points over here because I've got such a good clipboard record of no, no red marks on my name. Oh, except pride and self-righteousness. Yeah, so I'm trying to get you to relax, to say, this is a recovery program here at Summit. At any church should be for recovering sinners. That's us. Some of us are farther into the program than others. Some haven't entered yet. You're just watching. But I want you to feel safe about it. I want you to feel safe with Jesus. Now, if Jesus was just an ordinary good religious rabbi, you'd think he'd say, Zach, if you'll clean up your life, change professions, pay back what you owe, then I'll come to your house. Well, I can't come now. What would people think? What would the media do? It'll look like I'm condoning you. I can't afford the criticism it would cause my ministry. Can you imagine the blogs that will light up about me? Clean up your life, then I'll come to your party. But Jesus does not say that. He said, get down here. I must stay at your house right now. So whatever your secret is, you can trust Jesus with it. And Jesus pays a huge price for the grace he gives every one of us. Verse 7, all who saw it started to murmur and grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And notice a remarkable thing happens. Zach, who has joyfully and graciously received Jesus, now realizes the truth about his own life, his identity, 
his behavior. He knows now there are things that dishonor Jesus. And it's intolerable to Zach. He wants more than anything to be connected with Jesus. And now he's not willing to tolerate anything in his life that could threaten that relationship. And now all of a sudden, the stuff that meant so much to him, his wealth, his possessions, all that his life was built on, all the stuff he was willing to sacrifice, his reputation, his friendships, his decency and respectability so he could be rich, he's now ready to give up and to count it as nothing. And so it didn't even phase old Zach. And being received by Jesus was worth the whole world to him. So Zach does two things. If I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'll pay him back four times as much. Now, he didn't have to do that. By law, he was only required to pay people back what he had taken with a 20% penalty. Zacchaeus goes way beyond that. He's committed to making things right, and then some. And then he does another extraordinary thing. In addition to making things right that I've wronged, I want to replace my old habit of greed with extravagant generosity. Half of all my possessions I'll give to the poor. So after an honest examination of your life and mine, the next step is called remove and replace. I will ask God to remove what I've been doing wrong and replace it with the opposite virtue. Paul in Ephesians 4 backs it up. He says, not just to remove falsehood, but to replace it with truthfulness. Not just to remove bitterness, but to replace it with a forgiving spirit. See, once you've acquired a bad habit, the only way to stop doing it is to start doing something else incompatible with it. It's a lot harder to stop doing something than to start doing something else. For instance, if you have a problem with complaining, it doesn't do you any good to say, tomorrow I'm going to stop complaining. No, you won't. Instead, start to cultivate the practice of gratitude and thanksgiving. Quit whining and be grateful. Walk around the house and say, Lord, I'm glad I got electricity. I'm glad I got food in this refrigerator. I'm glad I have a house and not a cardboard over my head. Thank you, I got a car. It's old, it's not new, but hey, it's reliable. I have one. I'm able to have a good job. Thank you, I got a wife that loves me. Thank you, I've got decent furniture in here. What, what, you can walk around and spend an hour and a half if you'll start thanking God for what you got. Everybody. Be great. Instead of whining about what you don't have. If, if you say, well, I'm not going to complain. Lord, help me not complain anymore. Lord, I'm not going to complain. All you're doing is reinforcing complaining. You won't change a thing. Don't even focus on your weakness. Start building on a new habit that's just the opposite. And what happens is that what, you, what was once a stronghold gets weaker and weaker. And one day, you can't even believe that was you. It just doesn't occur anymore. Because you've developed a good habit of practicing gratitude. You've got a problem with gossip, then you start cultivating the practice of affirmation and encouragement. Zacchaeus could have said, look, I'm still going to collect taxes, but I'll try harder not to be greedy when I get around all that money. How, you, how long do you think that's going to last? Not long. He said, I'm so motivated and hungry to live in the kingdom of God and to follow Jesus I'm not only going to give up my greed, I'm going to learn to cultivate extravagant generosity. Half of everything I've got, I'll give it away to the poor. He did, it didn't have a hold on him anymore. Now, he had stuff, but he gave away half of all of his wealth and riches to show it's not going to dominate me. Don't wait till you make more money to be generous. It's an attitude anyway. You start right now where you have with what you got, with whatever little that might be. You build generous. You don't, I'll be generous when I win the lotto. I doubt it. If you're an old thief and stingy now, you won't, you'll just be a richer thief when you get bigger money. If you're unfaithful in a little, you'll be unfaithful in a lot. So just start where you are with what you have. And maybe the clearest sign of authentic repentance 
is that your primary goal is to make things right. No more damage control. I want a cure. And Zacchaeus was so gripped with the opportunity to be close to Jesus, he didn't care what the price was. I'll pay it. He's willing to do whatever it took. It wasn't even painful for him. So authentic repentance, I know for some of you, you measure it in deep emotion and tears. Lots of people do that. But when the tears and emotion go away, they don't change. And then other people are less emotional. They just walk out and say, Jesus, I want to do whatever it takes. Nothing's off limits to you in my life. I will make whatever changes I need to under the guidance of your Holy Spirit with wise counsel from friends, with clear teaching from scriptures. I'll do whatever I need to do so I can have an intimate connection with you and bring no dishonor to your name. Now, so everybody boo-hooing doesn't mean anything. It's, it's do you change? I don't think I'm deeply emotional, generally. I'm not generally emotional. But I've walked out, I've walked out, I can remember years ago, walking out of meetings, completely changed. But nobody knew it. And I've watched other people squall and bawl, and it didn't change at all. They just got caught. But they didn't change. So repentance is, it means metamorphosis, you know, it means to, you're going this way, you turn 180 degrees, and you're going the other way. That's all it is. I'm just a different guy. That's all. It's not about how many tears you cry or all that stuff. And so that's what Zacchaeus does. <laughs> I remember one time I led a lady to Jesus in her house back in Savannah, Georgia. She got out of town. Oh, she wailed. Oh, my. I've never seen anything like it. It could have been in a movie. She just bawled and squalled and hopped. She never came to church. Never saw her again. And then I saw other people, and I said, I walked away. I led them to Jesus in the home. They prayed with me. And I said to myself, no, oh, that wasn't real. And they ended up coming to church, becoming dear friends of ours, serving at Bible Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia, and they became lifelong members there. And I wouldn't have given you 20 cents. That I thought, shoot, that, he didn't mean that. It ain't going to happen. And I got the other lady with a whole beach towel, snotting and blowing. And, whoa, whoa. Never saw her. Is that helping anybody? Okay. So don't worry about how you react emotionally. And that's what Zach does. So Jesus looks at him and says, today, Zach, today. And by the way, at this moment, Zach hadn't done anything. He hadn't fixed anything, hadn't changed anything. Jesus has seen his heart. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is now a son of Abraham. Not just biologically, genetically, of course he was, but a son of Abraham in his heart because of his faith in Jesus. And then Jesus says to this crowd to clarify his mission and who he is and what he's about in case anybody hadn't gotten the message yet, for the Son of Man has come to seek out and save those who are lost. So the truth about Zacchaeus is he was wretched, despised, filled with guilt, unfulfillment. His life had been a waste. But as wretched and despised as he was, he was only one sincere confession away from intimacy with God. Now I don't know what going on in your life this morning. I don't know where you're tempted to hide, but I'll tell you this much. No matter how wretched you may feel about your life this morning, no matter how big it may feel to you, you're just one prayer away, just one prayer away from the love and mercy of a compassionate and gracious God who says you are worth the death of my son. You're worth everything to me. That's how valuable you are. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, and may God richly bless you.
For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.